in a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Start your engines and join me in the new mobile game, RuPaul's Drag Race Superstar. May the best superstar win. Available now. Folks, happy holidays. It's Matt. We are Dave Holmesless today, but never fear. We have not one, but two very special guests. They are the director, producer, and producer of a new documentary on Hulu called We Live Here, the Midwest. It's out December 6th, so probably by the time you hear this, it's out. Please welcome Melinda Marker and David Clayton Miller. Good morning. Nice to be here. Hi, guys. Yeah, hello. Where do we find you, David? You're obviously in a car. I am in a car. I'm in. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. Pulled over, and okay. uh, yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not glad you not are driving. pulled over safely. Yeah. And Melinda, where are you? I'm in my home office in Highland Park, Los Angeles. So I was saying we're we're very close. Yes, normally we're very close. I'm in New York at the moment, but uh, yeah, normally we are neighbors. So before we talk about the documentary. Let's just talk about the two of you. We're recording this is just after Thanksgiving. This will come out over the holidays. So how are you each spending your holidays? Well, I was in Prov- I was in Provincetown with my family. We go there every year for Thanksgiving. It's where the pilgrims first landed nice. before Plymouth Rock. It's always a lovely time to be there and, you know, get that little East Coast winter chill going. And of course, it's always nice to get back into sunny Los Angeles. Welcome back. And how about you, Melinda? Oh, well, we were stuck in sunny Los Angeles. So mm. <laughs> we did not have quite the New England experience, but it was lovely. Yeah, it was just gathering with some friends and family and, you know, the dogs and eating a lot. That's the dream. And what's the origin story of your professional partnership, the two of you? Can I make that how joke? How did you come together? David? Oh, you, you can make the joke. <laughs> I always tell people we dated in high school, which oh, is, is a joke. <laughs> oh, David's shaking his yeah. head. It always falls flat. I think it's very yeah. funny, but yeah. um, no one else Well, does, it apparently. seems like a believable <laughs> a believable way in, but it's, apparently not. Did you go to high school together? We did no. not. That's no. why, it, to me, it's very funny, but apparently not. Yeah. Nobody thinks so. <laughs> Nobody thinks so. In retrospect, so. it is. It's, it's a thinker, but I'm yeah. amused now. You didn't go to high school together. We did not go to yeah. high school together. Uh, No, we met about 10 years ago, collaborating on a video photography project for a little nonprofit, and it also involved LGBTQ families. So we just, we worked very well together, and I'll let David take it over why we decided, I don't know if we want to jump into how we wanted to do this project, why we came together a little more urgently, or? Yeah, I mean, I have a, I have a lot of questions about the project, obviously, but also do want to ask some of our, our, our normal questions just for the two of you uh, that we ask every guest. You know, we normally start out talking about your your current pop culture obsessions. So as you spend the holidays with your respective families, 
David, are you are you binging anything right now? Listening to anything? Seeing any movies you've loved? You know, I am. I'm into a lot of kid shows right now. I have three young boys, so we're watching lots of Christmas holiday fare over and over again. But watching Charlie Brown Christmas has always been a favorite of mine, and I'm getting my boys into it. They're liking it, so I'm doing a lot of Christmas music, uh, Christmas shows, and music right now. Oh, great! How about you, Melinda? I'm only watching things that begin with B. Okay, another joke that's a thinker. I'm trying to what? <laughs> well, it's true though. There's Such the, as? it's weird. The bear, which I love that series. Uh, beef, love beef. Thought that was really amazing and dark also and good. fun and also deadpan. Uh, you know, I thought it was very funny, but maybe no one else did. <laughs> and then no, definitely. I just started watching Beckham the documentary, and as a non-football lover, I am just pulled in. I think it's an amazing, I love the way they do it and the back and forth. Same. And, you know, they kind of hijack the narrative. You know, they, they, you're going one way and then suddenly you're like, oh, that didn't happen. I think that's, uh, it makes it a really fun documentary. It really was. I, I was so surprised. It was the last thing I expected to enjoy. Yeah, I have no soccer slash football interest. I knew only the very basics about David Beckham. I honestly was, I thought that it was going to be equally about Victoria. And I was just excited for like Spice Girls history. And it's, you know, it's really focused on him. But I got totally sucked in too. My sister-in-law was laughing that I was like cheering at all these, this old footage of him like scoring goals from like 20 years ago. But yeah, they do such a great job. Are you a fan now of football? Yeah, I'd say I'm a fan. I mean, I they're in. I don't know, if Melinda, in LA, if you've ever gone to an Angel City game, the women's soccer league that Natalie Portman started, and a bunch of other people. Not that kind of lesbian, but <laughs> <laughs> every woman who who I know, not every woman, uh, played soccer and still plays soccer. So I have friends on a women's team, and I just never got into it. This is also why I'm so amazed that I was pulled into Beckham because you know. I, kicking I a ball, a and, kicking a ball. I, you know, why? Uh, listen, you're preaching to the choir, but don't sleep on Angel City. The games okay. are surprisingly fun. It is also a, 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 a sort of a, a a level of the lesbian elite in the crowd that I I aspire to be part of. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so does Melinda. It's really a place to. <laughs> so does Melinda. Yes. <laughs> well, I know. Let's go to tomorrow. a game. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready, uh, Matt. Oh, yeah, I'll be your yeah your guest at one of the Angel City games. So talk to us about your professional histories before this project came together. I'm particularly interested in a very early credit of David's on a show called My So-Called Life. Yes, I was. Can you tell me about yeah, that? Yeah, you know, I started off as a production assistant on mm-hmm. on a lot of big movies. I worked for Spielberg and for Richard Attenborough and for Sidney Pollack. And was working my way up and then uh, had did my first television show called My So-Called Life, which was fantastic. And eventually worked my way up to producing two independent features and did those for a while. And then got caught up in a little bit of a drug and alcohol situation, which threw me back for a little bit. And then sort of re- restarted my career as a location assistant. And I was that for a long period of time. And then decided that I wanted to be and really focus on my photography. And so I honed in on that and started learning about the lighting and, and aspects of that. And then 
Melinda and I got together and we came up with this idea to focus on these gay families. So that's sort of my career arc. Melinda, what about you? What was the road to this project? Well, I think in whatever form, I've been drawn to stories. What's a good story? What's the narrative arc? I started out, but always visually. I've always worked in a visual medium. So after college, I moved to France for a few years. And while I, I was always a writer, my French, my written French wasn't great. So I worked as a photographer doing all sorts of strange things, anything from photographing architecture to photographing uh, women in a hair salon. <laughs> One of the odder jobs I've ever, in many, many odd jobs, and uh, worked on a television show there. And that was fun. Got back to the U.S., another TV show, and decided I, I really was writing for a long time. And started a, a little creative boutique with a business partner from France. And where what I learned is that I can tell a story about the most boring thing possible. For example, we, we had a pot. and We had to tell a story about the pot, <laughs> you know, a cookware pot. And I mm. thought, you know, if, if I can do that, and there is a story there, it, you know, what, what is it? It's not just a pot. It becomes a family heirloom and it becomes a story of a family gathering and what's happening and, you know, during the holidays. So being able to tell a story and work with David on, with actual people and follow their stories as well and create that and put that together in a way that's hopefully compelling, it's, it's far more exciting than French cookware. It turns out. Yeah, so so talk to me, David, about um, the urgency behind this project and sort of the initial spark. Yeah, Melinda and I were, you know, we were having one of our usual coffees, and the 2016 election had occurred, and I was reflecting on what it was like to be a married gay father that was legal, and I started to we started to look up some ideas about uh, what the families were going through, even though, you know, all the discrimination, even though gay marriage, gay marriage equality had passed. And we found an alarming amount of discrimination that was still existing. And we thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to interview families of what it is like for them now and what it is they're going through? Because I think there was many people that thought that gay marriage solved a lot of things, when in fact it did not. Yeah, I was especially excited to watch it because I grew up in Ohio and a lot of family is still there. I mean, I've obviously li I'm I'm married and I've lived in the, the the you know the bubbles of LA and New York for a very long time now and so I have felt disconnected from what the like everyday reality is for the the queer people that did not move to a coast. I and I I should ask, I mean, since this takes place in the Midwest, where are you both from? I, I was actually born in Ohio, and then my parents quickly moved with me as a baby, <laughs> and I grew up in the Southwest. But again, like you, we would go in the summers and visit family in the Midwest, and it was such a different culture from the Southwest, certainly, that you know I would be asked as a child, did we live in a teepee? I would say yes. Again, no one would laugh. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> She's just above our heads. She's just operating on a more intellectual <laughs> no, level. Just, I mean, no, needs, you, we're needs, the problem. She needs more tea. She needs more tea. More tea. Yeah. She <laughs> I need, need more tea, tea and then yeah. I'll then I'll get faster. Yeah. Yeah, but to to your to your question, you know, for me, I thought naively, we're we're progressing here as a country. You know, we're moving forward. We're, we've we've increased rights for LGBTQ folks, and the country's going in a great direction. And then, you know, 2016 came and there was just a 
shock for me and and a, literally it reverberated in the other direction yeah i don't the backlash. think we, uh, the backlash that's exactly it i don't think that you know as i didn't realize how much backlash there would be you know i was i was mm -hmm. of course elated that that the supreme court passed marriage equality but i didn't think of the repercussions that were going to come from that and that is something that you know as we started to do more research we like wow there is a there is a strong backlash out there, and I think that it has only increased now. It wasn't just the 2016 election. You know, it's you know, think about this: the third most powerful individual in government holds well documented, antagonistic, and dangerous views about gay people. You know, about me, about about our subjects in the in the in this film. And you, when you think about that, we're in a very in very perilous times right now. You know, so I think the timing yeah. of this release it's is pivotal. You know, to show an audience that, you know, these are just everyday folks here that deserve to have rights and those are being taken away. Yes. And where did you grow up? And, and I grew up, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. So to be honest with you, I hadn't really been to the Midwest until uh, just a few years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, what an initiation you ended up getting. It, it was. Uh, through this, I can only imagine. It was. So I'd like to talk a little bit about each family and just sort of go through each of it, but tell us first how you went about finding the right people to profile. Melinda, did you have connections in Ohio from your Midwestern roots? No. <laughs> we kind of <sighs> cut those off at us. No, we didn't, you know, but uh, they died. No, they didn't. <laughs> I've got to stop that. Um, I'm sure they're fine. <laughs> sure, they're all fine. Listen, there are a lot of people who are dead to me. It's fine. <laughs> But uh, no, we it was it was a not easy process finding families. It was to me in in many ways the most challenging process because you have no you don't know what you're going to find and you're not sure how comfortable they're going to be sharing their stories. But we went about it, you know, sort of stalking people on social media in a good way with their permission, Facebook groups and Instagram and, you know, uh, uh, sometimes, you know, friends of friends of friends and calling them and, uh, you know, go ahead, David. Well, it's very similar to a casting process. You know, you want to you want to interview people, you want to talk with them. You know, it's important to make them feel comfortable. You want to see what they're able to give, what they're going to feel comfortable with you about. But it was very difficult because we did come across a lot of families that were interested in the documentary and what we wanted to do, but were very fearful about the rec recriminations that they would experience. Most of them were worried and concerned about their jobs and what that would mean for them, mm. you know. So we did encounter a lot of that. And, you know, we, um, in fact, one we had one family in Wisconsin that we were all set to go. We were on the road. We were in the middle of filming and they backed out. And so it was like, wow. Oh, you know, they, they got a little, little concerned and cold feet there. And then we scrambled to find another family, which worked out fantastic. But the casting process, you know, in finding these families was very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's, it's so it, it, bizarre to just because of the world I live in now to imagine being afraid of sharing just such you know basic information about your life just because i mean i'm doing it on a podcast you know twice a week and i would imagine melinda that as you're earning their trust that you also are spending a lot of off-camera time with these families well one of the silver linings if there were yeah there weren't too many of the pandemic was that people became comfortable with zoom and facetime so I I could get to know them in a more, you know, it's always better visually to see someone and 
record that with their permission, share it with David, so that, you know, we did. We set up a number of calls, and I would get to know, excuse me, their families, and, you know, really entered their lives already in a certain way. So there was a level of comfortableness. And it is, it's, it's, and to me, and you may feel this way as well, hosting a podcast, it's not just the, the way in which you gain someone's trust is by sharing so that people get yeah. to know you, you know, it's, it's, it's a mutual process. And that way they feel, they feel more comfortable. They, they're, you know, you're sharing a lot of yourself and, you know, people would wander into my office and I'd introduce them and, <laughs> and vice versa. And it was, uh, it was an interesting process and we've become very close to the families in the film and protective of them. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure. And I, I, I'm also, I'm curious about what the relationships look like after, you know, the, the, the documentary comes out, but let's talk a bit about each, each family. So Dave, forgive me, I don't have their names written down, but the David, I think the first family we meet is the trans queer couple. Right. Nia, Nia and Katie. Iowa. Yeah. Nia and Katie from Nia Iowa with five children. You know, that I, I, I was so drawn to that story because here was a couple that had been high school sweethearts. They'd actually known each other in elementary school, became high school sweethearts, married at college, and had four children together. And after the fourth child, Nia had transitioned to become Nia, and then had a fifth child, you know, stayed together and had a fifth child. And I was so drawn to that, because I think that most people think, you know, divorce or whatever, they're going to live off their own life, but they stayed together. And, and watching Katie and her love, and of course, she gets very emotional when she talks about the church, because it was the church that taught her to love Nia. And it was, you know, and, and because of that love, the church excommunicated them. So it was a difficult thing, but I thought, I thought it was a fascinating family and the, the children were fantastic. In fact, listening to Katie speak and talk, I, there was a moment there where I said, wow, I wish my mom had been like this. She was just so cool and down to earth mm. and honest and did not, you know, shared everything. And that was, they were a real joy to film. And, you know, we like, practically moved into their house. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's really moving to see them with the kids. I mean, I just, there's just the, the the normality of it, but also that the kids are, the kids absolutely get it. You know, that you might wonder if kids in a small town in Iowa are, you know, upset that their family looks different than, you know, the families of their peers, but you don't get that sense. They're They're cool. I guess it's my point. They, kids they are, cool. are the kids are cool, and as they mentioned in the in the segment, people in the community meet their kids first often because they're in school and they think, well, we like your kids, so we'll probably like your parents. So they're like five little ambassadors who come into the community, and I think that's important. But yeah, they they it's it's just such an honest, open, loving family. You know, they're and really it, exceptional. Yeah. yeah, and you know, and those children, you know, they haven't been tainted with discrimination and prejudice and racism, like I think many other children are because of their parents' point of view, you know? And it certainly doesn't help that we have a Speaker of the House with that very same point of view. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's 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 less about them being just sort of rejected by their community, but it's specifically about them being rejected by the church that was the foundation of their marriage to begin with, like you said, David. And Katie kind of grappling with the idea that in spite of what she was being told by the the powers that be, she knows that they are living examples of everything that they were taught about Christianity by just accepting and, and loving each other. Such a simple idea, but that it's but it's radical in a way, you know, coming from her. 
I was curious if either of you come from a religious background. I, I grew up in, in the church, but a really liberal and now affirming church to the degree that when I brought my uh, partner home after we'd been dating a few months about, uh, and again, they went from, okay, you know, to yay, Melinda's gay. <laughs> and and we, mm -hmm. we, we went to visit and we'd been dating at that point about two months. And we were surrounded by a group of women who were in their 70s and 80s saying, oh, thank God you found someone. Of course, this was affirming of the, of the gay experience, but it terrified my partner. You know, it's like, oh, my God, there's a there's a herd of, of Christian ladies affirming our relationship that I don't know if it will last. <laughs> so that was yeah. that was an interesting thing. But, yeah, I understand wanting to be part of that community very much so. And particularly for, you know, it, it provides it. I think, as Nia says, in its best sense, church provides community relationships. Yeah. And, you know, to have what was striking to me and and heartbreaking with Katie. You know, you think if, if, an, if something doesn't want me in organization, then I don't want them as opposed to, right. oh my God, they don't want me. And this is just devastating. So it, it wasn't and, obvious. And from, sorry, from what I recall, Nia and Katie are still, they're still looking for a, a, a home in a church. Is that right? Or I, I don't think we see them find one in the documentary. Am I misremembering? No, they do not. They 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 sort of had a community of of friends and family that they made in their community, but it's not a, an established church of some kind. So they, the last we heard, you know, they are still looking. Yeah. And it, it, David, any did you grow up in with any kind of religion? No, no, not really. I mean, you know, we went to to church on sort of you know Christmas Eve and things like that, but I was not very religious, and so. It was really, I was really drawn to Katie when she was expressing her, how much she missed the church. You could see the passion that they had for mm -hmm. that. And that's something that I, you know, I did not experience. So I was very drawn to, to see that. Yeah. I, even though I grew up in a rural town where religion is very embedded in the culture, I happened to have been raised by basically two atheists. So it wasn't part of my family, my upbringing, but I was surrounded by it. And I, you know, all these people I grew up with who have, kind of become evangelical themselves. And I was just back in Ohio and was really faced with like the way that I have, I, I preemptively rejected a lot of them because I assumed knowing, knowing their politics, knowing what is preached in the churches that they go to, that it's a non-starter for me, you know, and my husband and I just got married a couple of years ago. None of them were invited. There are still some hurt feelings. And and, and, you know, this, I guess, brings me to the, the next family, which again, I'm sorry, I don't have their names, but the, the gay black couple in Nebraska. Mario, Mario and Monty. And Monty. Yeah. Mario and Monty, thank you. And, you know, part of their story is that they are very close with their neighbors from across the street who are so supportive and were so welcoming, you know, as soon as they moved into the neighborhood, but also happen to be Trump supporters. Yeah, we found well, that, and I think, and yeah, we, you know, we found that very interesting and very important to to feature in the in the documentary because you know we are so divided right now on the political landscape. But I think it's also important to show that there are many people that do not necessarily understand the gay relationships and whatnot, and they were a fascinating couple to interview because. They really respected Monty, you know, and Mario, and they, you know, Mario was training their son to play piano. Mm. And, you know, to what we're ultimately hoping, I mean, the goal was to tell good stories, but I think good stories can create a bridge 
of understanding. So if you don't happen to have, you're living in the Midwest, you don't happen to have a Mario and a Monty next door, that you, you see them on camera and think, gosh, you know, I would like these guys next door to me. But what's interesting as well with their neighbors is that they didn't necessarily, to me, it's not a matter of being against something, but not thinking it all the way through. For example, off camera, off camera, of course, uh, they had mentioned, and they're absolutely lovely people. They mentioned that they were pro uh, book banning that that showed um, LGBTQ families. And I said, well, why is that? And they, they said, well, we think that sexual education, you know, and I said, this is not about sexual education. This is just about showing diverse families. And wouldn't you want Morela, Mario Monti's infant daughter, to be able to see her two dads, to think it's okay to have two dads, because you think it's okay to have two dads. And they thought about it for a minute and said, yes. So just, again, it's just thinking through, thinking a little farther than you may be comfortable with initially. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on something that that Melinda said. You know, it's you, you watch Mario Monti, you think like, oh, I'll like them. You don't even have to like these people. How about not fearing them? Because I think that fear mm-hmm. of gay people and the LGBT community is so rampant that you really need to stop and pause for a moment and think, what is it that you're actually afraid of? These are people, these have families, they have children, they have financial burdens just like everybody else, they have health concerns like everybody else. There's really nothing to fear. So you don't even have to like them, but you certainly should treat them with decency. So then next we have a couple, there are two trans women in Minnesota who are coming together sort of as they transition, after they transition, and are sort of grappling with the families that they left behind and trying to heal the wounds that were created there. And this was a really interesting segment because there was just so much empathy on sort of both sides of this fracture that happened in the family, you know, that we're watching, again, forgive me, I don't have their names, we're watching one family. Deb and Jen. Deb and Jen. And and one thing I just wanted to point out, we we, yeah. we put that, that's actually the last segment because of their conflict oh, and, and the complexities of their familial situation. That was something that we found very important to discuss. And we saved that for the last part. I'm certainly, obviously, happy to talk about it now. But, you know, that was, there was a lot of conflict there that, that Melinda, why don't you touch upon, you know, what you were drawn to on that? It's interesting because, and maybe we've all experienced this, if you, you know, you, you, if you're anything different, like part of the queer community, you have to be the perfect family. You have to be the perfect couple in order to be acceptable. And I like to think we're past that, that you can be just as messy as every other family or most families. I mean, me and Katie were, are, oddly kind of perfect. (laughs) None of us have those families. And with Deb and Jen and then the girls and Trish, the ex-wife, I think that they reflect, you know, more of people in society. And, you know, what I want to say that the fact that they're queer does not necessarily mean that they have to be the perfect family or the perfect example of queerness. I guess that's it. So we really wanted to show an example of a family that's coming together, that's trying to, how do you figure out when something's broken to get to a place where you mend that, regardless of what the issue is? And this happened to be the transition and how the transition spread out across the family. And I think a lot of people will look at Trish, the ex-wife, and you know they may see, wow, she was a victim of this. But what was fantastic about her, and she sort of turned into a hero, is that she's kept the family 
together. She's made sure that the children, you know, meet with Jen and try to explain it. And they've done research on what it is to be trans, to be trans person. And I love what Michaela, the daughter said is, you know, there's so much focus on the person that transitions and what it is they're going through and the torment that they're dealing with. But there's not really a lot of discussion about the people around them and the impact that has on them. And that was really important to highlight because uh, you don't really hear much about that. And I believe the only, the, the only one left we haven't discussed is Heather Keeler, in, in who's, who's queer. And, oh, we have two, two more. more. Two more families and Heather Keeler. Oh, yeah. so, okay. Remind me well, who else we have. We have Courtney haven't. and Denise, the goat farmers in Kansas. Oh, right? of course. You know, and, yes. and they're just such a happy couple. And that was a great, that was, that was so good to, to, to go out there. And I found out that Melinda loves goats. Who doesn't? Who doesn't yeah. love baby goats? Yeah. yeah. I mean, really. They, I almost they the, stole a baby goat. Yeah. They were the family that had to homeschool their, their boy because of the bullying that he was receiving in his public elementary school. So that was a very interesting take to see that because some of the very things that, that Merrick experienced, I think, might be happening in Florida right now with the don't say, you know, when, when schools are not allowed to talk about gay parents. I mean, it's also interesting how he, as a young boy, was influenced by the community he was in. When he came home from school and said to his married lesbian mothers, I don't think gay marriage is right. That was, you know, devastating to them. And, you know, it it didn't come, obviously didn't come from them, as uh, Denise says. It came from just his being, despite his, his home, being every day in a community that says this is wrong. So I think, gosh, you know, for the next, if you, you know, it's not just parents holding maybe discriminatory views, just the fact of that influences the next generation and the next generation. Yeah. And then the other family that we featured, which is sort of an extended broad family, were Mark and Russ, Russ being the teacher who created a safe space at his school. And we we included them as a family because, you know, often when children come out, their parents ostracize them and cut them off. And they have to turn to friends and other people and they create a community and create their own family, which is exactly what we, you know, Russ did in Ohio. And so we wanted to feature those students that he had taught and and the family unit that they that they created. And and to me, some of the current students, uh, Vin, who's non-binary, I thought what was really important, her mother, Sarah, saying, I don't understand this, but I want to. Because that's mm-hmm. so honest. You know, it's okay to not understand something, to not immediately even have acceptance, but wanting to, wanting to go there. I, I just think that's so realistic. And, and it's so powerful. It, it's, well, it's just shocking to me that a parent can cut off their child. I, I you know, I just, you know, I'm a parent myself. So I, I imagine, you know, I'm trying to think how could I possibly do that? Like I can't, I can't imagine how a parent can cut off their child. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's for another and episode. Now we, another and now day. we go to Heather Keeler. <laughs> and now we go to yeah. Heather Keeler. So she's a Minnesota state representative. She's she's currently out there fighting for our rights. Tell me about getting her involved in the documentary and why it was important to include her. Well, you know, she really is on the forefront of political change. But what was interesting and that to me she she makes so obvious is that we're in a scary time, a really scary time. I mean, if you're getting death threats all the time, just because, as she says, it's not because of the bills she passes or tries to get passed. It's because of just the fact of her. She's an indigenous queer woman. That fact 
makes people very angry to the to the point of death threats. And that's where we're at. And a mother as well, you know. Yeah. So the title is We Live Here, Colon the Midwest. Does this imply that there might be a future, you know, we live here the deep south? Yes. Yeah, uh, Melinda and I are researching right now on another project. Uh, we would like to continue this. We have found some very interesting families that have a little bit of a different perspective on what and, and different forms of discrimination than what we featured in the Midwest. And so we're excited to explore that and present that. Great. And you can keep going. You can do We Live Here West Hollywood. Right. You know, we, <laughs> sure. Yes. Or well, life in our bubble. How too. about We Live Here Paris or We Live Here Italy? Yeah. <laughs> You know. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious, as David, I know you have kids. Melinda, I think you said you do as well. Not that have I'm aware sh- of. No, no. <laughs> oh, sorry. Dog children. I, well, I was going to ask if you've yes. shown your kids the documentary, including dogs, and what their reaction was. I've shown a lot of kids because we end up being the surrogate aunts, my partner and I, to a lot of children. Uh, they just... There's something about being a, a lesbian couple. I found that people leave their children with us a lot. <laughs> they just say, oh, they look like nice women. Yeah. And then they just drop their children off. And I have seen the documentary with children. And it's an interesting, I, I think, uh, you know, depending on the age of the kids, and David will speak to this obviously much better. Uh, there was just sort of, yeah, the children, I, but again, they're in Los Angeles, went, okay, yes. You know, my eldest child is 10. So he's walked in and out while we're, you know, I'm viewing the, 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 the movie over and over again. He has not seen it in full, but he will be seeing it this Wednesday when we have our premiere, our big shindig at the Director's Guild on Wednesday. So he, he will be there. I'll be so curious to hear their their reviews, you know, kids that grew up in Los Angeles with gay dads, you know, that it, it, this must be such a foreign concept to them in a way, some of these challenges. Yes, the challenges for them are foreign because, you know, at, at Logan's school, there are several other gay parents and he doesn't think anything of it, you know, but we've, you know, my husband and I have been very straightforward and honest with him from the very get go. And he sees it as no, no biggie that he has two dads. And mo- best of all, his friends don't see it as any big thing either. It's just a sort of normal part of everyday life. Melinda Marker, David Clayton Miller. Thank you so much for being here. The documentary is we live here at the Midwest on Hulu starting December 6th. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Take care. That is our show. Please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at homophiliapod. Homophilia is a World of Wonder production. Music by Ben Wise. Our executive producer is Renee Colvert. Our associate producer is Jess Walinski. And our audio engineer is Justin Matson. Many thanks to Michael Pressman and everyone at World of Wonder.